Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Reptile Living Room once again. I'm your host, John F. Taylor, and tonight we talk with uh, Troy Jones of EuroRanch.com. Troy's been doing a lot of the work with the Euromastics. He has some uh, specific species he's been working with lately, and uh, we're going to let him take over with uh, just talking about the Euromastics, how to care for them, uh, what he's been doing with them lately, that kind of thing. He does have a very interesting breed or color morph that I'm uh, very interested in seeing, and I'm sure you will too. And as always, we are brought to you once again this evening by Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos for the finest bred captive care, uh, captive bred leopard geckos, African fat tails, coleonics, as well as the uh, Australian species. Definitely give her a tumble. That's Marsha McGinnis of GoldenGateGeckos.com. And without further ado, we're going to let uh, Troy talk to us about the Euromastic species. So tonight for our listeners uh, who are somehow living under a rock and don't know who Troy Jones is, uh, he is the owner and uh, breeder at Euro Ranch. Now, Troy, how did you first get into reptiles? I guess would be the best place to start with uh, the listeners. Well, uh, basically as a child, you know, I spent my summers in the woods uh, in Ohio in, in the creeks uh, collecting, you know, crayfish and frogs and turtles and snakes and I've always been fascinated by reptiles and as a child uh, I used to breed you know fish and hamsters and gerbils and rabbits and, and wow. then as I got older okay as an adult I got into uh, bearded dragons and, oh uh, around uh, 96 I was breeding uh, bearded dragons and then uh, traded uh, those for uh, molly uromastics and that's kind of what started me on the on the uromastic uh, path oh okay all right now, um, how did you first start out breeding the Euromastics? What, what attracted you to that specific reptile? Well, after being involved with the with the bearded dragons, what really attracted me to the Euromastics were the no insects part of it. And, oh, okay. Uh, so I really liked that. Uh, you know, anybody that's been involved with beardies knows you, you've got quite a lot of insects that you have to deal with, and and so I uh, I started. Uh, researching after I traded for the mollies and got to be really good friends with Randall Gray, who was like the pioneer of breeding Euromastics. Right. And uh, he needed somebody to help him launch the Euromastic webpage on Kingsnake, so I've got some computer background, so we just kind of became friends, and I did the, the technical side of the webpage, and he provided the articles and and the uh, pictures, and I took the pictures of his animals and posted them, and, and then he began selling me uh, pairs of ornates. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. So just basically through speaking with him and reading his articles and research and mm-hmm. and, uh, and all of that, I uh, I bred my first pair of Bornates back in like '98. Okay. And uh, now, what species of Euromastics are you currently working with? Um, you know, uh, uh, this year I'm focusing on the Ornates. Last year I bred uh, Venti, which had been renamed to Yemenesis. Right. And I bred and I bred uh, Saharans, and uh, I. Uh, um, really want to focus on or- ornate so i had uh, i had acquired audrey vanderlin's last pair of uh, white bloodline ornates and uh, kind of built a, a colony around that so uh, wow. this year I, I, yeah, yeah i'm going to be breeding ornates and possibly philbii but right now all i really have are the ornates oh okay all right now um you brought up the uh fact of the uh Yemenensis was used to be known as uh Oh god, no, the name escapes me. Uh, Benti, Rainbow Benti, Benti. Right, Rainbow Benti's. Yeah. Now, yeah, Thomas What Thomas Holmes Yeah. Yemen, yeah, what is going on with that? Cuz it's like just a couple of years ago, you know, 
everybody was happy with the way the, that the taxonomy was. And now I turn around and I'm like, well, wait a minute, when did this change? And <laughs> now they're adding species, taking species out, and saying it's not even a Euromastix anymore. Yeah, have exactly. you been able to follow all that at all? Or? Yeah, I got some communications from Thomas Wilms basically explaining that to me. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of... Uh, Technology has really changed how they look at the, the Euromastic species and how they break them up, and they're doing genetic testing now to just to figure out uh. what's related to what, and and so now they're saying that you know now Philbii is the sister species to Ornate, and and uh, Ocelotus or the Sudanese are no longer a sister species to Ornate; they're their own species, and they've been doing a lot of juggling around like that. It's uh, all related to the genetics of it. Unbelievable. So they're actually yeah. doing genetic testing on the reptiles and then going, okay, no, this one really is this and this one really is that. Right. And in some cases it doesn't even, you know, you look at the, the reptiles and you're like, it doesn't even appear like that would be the case. But Right. The it doesn't even look, saying, you know. <laughs> right, right. But the genetics are saying it's so, so that's that's what they're going on. And Thomas has been the, the pioneer of that, so he's been, you know, he writes the scientific papers and, mm -hmm. and they basically follow his... Uh, his taxonomy and his renaming of those, as well as a group of other guys that he works with. Wow. And, and you have communication with them. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, so on jealous. <laughs> yeah, on occasion. Yeah, I, I'm not, you know, Thomas, he's got some of my pictures in a book that he wrote 10 years ago, and he'll, you know, send me stuff. He'll see me posting on on uh, Twitter or on uh, Facebook or on the right. internet. He'll, he'll correct me if I'm saying something that's not exactly correct. <laughs> <laughs> Calling him Rainbow Bentai, and he sent me an email saying, no, those are Yemenis, and then explained to me why. So, Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um, who would you say would be your uh, biggest inspiration for reptile and breeding at all? Yeah, you know, I would, I would have to say, um, you know, my biggest uh, uh, inspiration is my love of animals in nature but as far as a person it would be like i was explaining randall gray i mean it okay. was really through you know spending time with him and launching that web page and just getting to see all of his animals and and uh and just discuss things that he really kind of lit a fire inside of me that that was you know i always loved nature and animals and reptiles and breeding and stuff but mm -hmm. um it was just really cool to see a pioneer you know somebody he bred a lot of the species that had never been bred before and he was working with zoos and Wow. There's a lot of neat, neat levels that I got to experience. No kidding. Now, yeah. uh, as far as, um, you know, you talk about the zoos and stuff like that, now, a lot of people have fear of reptiles. Where do you think that comes from? And this is something I ask all my guests just to, you know, get a feel of where they're coming from because, you know, I've had people come in my, to different shops that I've worked at and stuff like that, and they literally, I mean, avoid the reptile section, like the plague. And it's like it, it just boggles my mind. I don't understand why people are so afraid of reptiles you know yeah yeah i've, I've seen that too and I, I think it's you know because of stories and television a lot i think a lot of it's because you know people that have that fear um they've never really personally experienced working with reptiles you okay know, if you've ever seen somebody that that's been brought up to fear snakes or <laughs> reptiles that you know you get to know them and and they they finally trust you and you, they actually handle the animals and and then you know after a period of time that kind of disappears but mm -hmm. i guess you know, kind of the fear of the unknown, and there's a lot of things on TV that make you think. You oh know, my gosh! They don't show the, you know, they show the negative side, not the positive side. A yeah, lot of time, so. exactly. Okay. Now, what would you say to someone that was possible, uh, potentially interested in getting a Euromastix as a pet? What would be like a, a rough outline, let's say, of 
captive care if they were looking into it? Yeah, well, basically what I would, you know, what I suggest to people, they contact me looking to get into your mastic as a pet is just, is find out, you know, is it is it for yourself? Is it for your children? What level of people are going to be involved with the animal? To me, your mastics are, are, are more of a, of a viewing type of animal than a hands-on type of animal, although, right. you know, many of them will calm down and, and get quite docile uh, being handled, but mm-hmm. I don't really suggest it for young kids or if you want to have your lizard on your lap watching TV every night, you know, I wouldn't really, I'd probably steer you toward a bearded dragon over a right. your mastic. So, um, but the, those people that, that like to set up, you know, really nice uh, desert uh, uh, enclosures and, and enjoy viewing the animals and working with the animals, I would suggest to, to try to find a, a breeder that's selling captive bred animals and start there. Okay. You know, be it just because, uh, you know, the wild caught animals are so much harder to acclimate in your taking a chance at the gamble of whether that animal will survive in captivity, whereas captive bred, you've got, you know, a much, much better chance. Right. And, and so... Uh, and, yeah, because a lot of the wild animal, or wild caught, I should say, come in with parasite loads and stuff like that, and if you don't get that checked out, it's, you know, it could be a matter of days, you know, and you come out and find the animal, you know, packed away and what have you. Right, right. And I do, uh, I do sell some wild caught, and nowadays a lot of places call them farmed. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll bring in, you know, two or three of the more exotic uh, batches a year. And, right. But but what I do that's a little bit different than a lot of people is I'll acclimate them. I'll keep them for several months and make sure that they're eating and gaining weight and shedding, and and they actually adjust to captivity before I resell them. Most brokers will, you know, if they have to feed them, they've had them too long type of situation. So Yeah, yeah, and that's one know, thing I noticed. Um, I don't know if... if if I was talking to somebody or uh, at a show or something like that, but we were talking about Euromastics, and they had mentioned that, that when you bring in um, the wild cut, you actually acclimate them before they go out the door. Yeah. Which yeah. is something so that, that was really cool. Right, right. That's just basically because, I, you know, I really like, I care about the animals more than just the money. I mean, the money's nice, but sure. I really want them to thrive and, and do well for people. And, you know, it's it, nobody wants to buy an animal and have it die next week. And right. If it, if it's not acclimated, you never know. It might do great or it might not do so great. So. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, speaking of uh, not in it for the money, what goes into, what kind of factors go into the pricing for Euromastics that you currently uh, are selling? Is it more um, based along a color color morph or is it just on, you know, what the market is? Because, I mean, the Euromastics market is pretty small. I mean, there's only like, what, four or five maybe breeders out there that are doing it on a regular basis? Yeah, there's probably maybe four or five Larger breeders, and then there, of course, there's people sprinkled throughout the United States that right. have a pair of, you can pair of your, your mastics that breed. But mm-hmm. as far as what goes into my pricing, it's you know, of course, whether it's captive bred or wild caught, and then mm-hmm. what color you know morphs it has, the weight, the health, what type okay. of disposition, you know, and, and then also how rare is the species, and, and also how long has it been in my care? Because a lot of animals that I end up reselling, I might have them for a year or two, uh, and I'll typically charge more for that animal than one that I might have owned yeah. for months. Um, you know, just basically along those lines. So Right, okay, all right. Now, as far as um, what would you say is the most uh, <clears throat> satisfying element of uh, working with Euromastics on a personal level? Uh, for me, it's it's really the breeding side of things. I, oh, really, okay. enjoy, uh, I really enjoy working with the animals, getting the, the breed and, and, and then uh, incubating the eggs and having them hatch out. You know, to me, that's like a kid at Christmas when you get the, when you actually get the babies. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, um, 
you know, I enjoy watching them. I, I enjoy watching how they uh, go about their day-to-day lives, and, and, and the breeding side is really what gets me excited. Okay, very cool. Now, as far as breeding is concerned, I'm sure you ran into, you know, um, issues when you first started breeding, you know, like incubation temperatures were off or, you know, what have you. It seems like all the major breeders out there, you know, have, you know, stories of, you know, well, when I first started, you know, we didn't have this, and this is how I overcame it. So what yeah. are some of the hardships, or not necessarily hardships, but difficulties that you had when you first started, and then how did you overcome those? Well, really, the, 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 some of the hardships I had when I first started breeding, especially like the ornates, uh, in the beginning I tried to house them as pairs because I had talked to other breeders that, that actually had success in doing that, and, um, and I was really having a lot of aggression, and, and the males would almost try to breed the females to death, and, and it just, um, you know, a lot of times if the female wasn't receptive, it would cause a lot of health issues, and then she would end up not even expiring at a later date. So wow. what I... What I did was I separated my animals into separate cages, and uh, and I still do that today. I keep all my animals separately, and I only introduce the females to the males for, you know, supervised breeding sessions. And, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, for me, that, that was a big, a big uh, plus to keep them separate. And I can also, you know, monitor their food intake and their and their output and, and you know, it, it, uh, tell if an animal's sick and, and think about it easier being, you know, housed separately. Right, right. Now, housing separately, that's got to take a lot of room. I mean, how many animals do you currently work with? Um, you know, right now I've, I, I've probably got 25 cages set up and about, I think I've got 14 ornates right now uh, that I've got, which is really on the low side of what, last year I had up to 25 animals at one time, but oh I sold gosh. out a lot of that stock when I was uh, started to focus on the ornates. But I've got a 40-foot long, 8-foot wide sunroom with stacked vision cages as well as uh, hodgepods of 7,500-gallon aquariums, and then I raised my hatchlings and babies up in 55-gallon Rubbermaid tubs. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Now, uh, <clears throat> in your opinion, what's the hardest part about being successful in the reptile industry? Well, you know, I think uh, the, the hardest part of being successful in the reptile industry, well, especially the Euromastics, is, is competing against the brokers that are selling the wild-caught animals. Right. A lot of times, you know, lizards will come in the United States and the paperwork will say captive bred and, you know, a broker is going to tell you, yep, this is captive bred ornate. And, you know, one of the more reputable breeders like myself is going to tell you, well, you know, they're telling us it's captive bred. It might be farmed if you're lucky, but it's more than likely really wild caught. <laughs> right. You know, but, you know, you can't compete at a show if you got, you know, a broker that's had the lizard for five minutes that's saying, oh, yeah, it's captive bred against ones that you that you bred yourself <laughs> or that you acclimated, you know, so it's a little tough on that side of things. But right. if, if uh, you get to be well-known and people understand that you're an honest person and that you, you know, sell captive bread when it's captive bread or you tell them that it's not captive bread when it's not, then mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times people will buy from me over somebody at another table that's cheaper just because they know I'm telling them the truth about what they're getting. Right, develop a reputation then. Yeah, yeah okay. develop it. and also support them after the purchase, of course. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's something I've heard uh, uh, out of all the breeders I've talked to. Uh, a few have mentioned that, but most of them, you know, um, never made mention of that. But, you know, like I said, yourself and a couple other breeders that I've talked to have been very specific about that, um, you know, make sure to support the person after the purchase. Right, so, right. And I'll support anyone, anybody that's, 
you know, listen to this interview. If they contact me with questions, I'm pretty, uh, pretty quick about replying back. And I don't, it doesn't matter to me if I sold the animal or not. My, my main thing is just to help people with, with the, the, their concerns and, and hopefully, you know, give that animal a better level of care. Right, right. Now, what are some of the major changes that you've personally seen in the industry since you started back in 98? Yeah, well, um, you know, I've seen quite a lot of changes. Back in, you know, 98, I had built my collection up to about 40 ornates, and my house got hit by a tornado, and I had to sell all of them. So, Do what? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 40 that, ornates, that, and your house got hit by a tornado? Yeah, yeah, so I ended up selling my whole collection and, and got out of it for a while, and then I just got back into it a few years ago, uh, uh, and uh, actually uh, just like last year, and uh, uh, so... Uh, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, in the old days, they used to, uh, you know, tell you to feed them uh, crickets all the time, which we've really, the studies have shown that's really not a good thing for most of the species of Euromastix. Another right. thing is they, they used to have you soak them like once a week, and they've kind of figured out that, uh, you know, too much humidity causes blister disease, mouth rot, tail rot, and it's best to really not bathe a Euromastic unless you absolutely have to. And, right, uh, right. They used to, you know, tell you to put them in a 40-gallon breeder and, They've kind of learned that, you know, you really need more like a four by two cage as a right. place to start. You know, especially these animals require you know 120 to 140 degree hot side and then 85 to 95 degree cool side. So you need a pretty big size cage to give them enough of a gradient that they can move around. And yeah, so, you know, there's been a lot of uh, and and their diets too. There's been a lot of studies that that showed what they ate in the wild, the cata flowers, and that. Uh, you know, there was less than one percent animal protein in their diet, and that was just ants that got on the flowers. You know, that uh, they didn't actually eat on purpose, and so yeah, it uh, just kind of came along for the ride, and yeah, <laughs> there yeah, it went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and you know, the larger cages sizes, as well as the you know the diets, and and just didn't have that knowledge. You know, ten years ago, they'd bring in two hundred ornates, and one hundred eighty of them would die. Right. You know? Nowadays, they bring in 200 ornates, and, and probably 180 of them will live. Right, know, it's, exactly. It's become a lot better uh, levels of care, and people understand a lot better of how to take care of them. Okay. Now, what would you say are some of the biggest risks uh, getting involved in the reptile industry? I think some of the biggest risks in getting involved in the reptile industry have somewhat to do with, uh, uh, well, some of the shipping you know, there's been, uh, like, ship my reptiles is no longer allowed to ship via UPS, and they're trying to... I've been seeing some talk about, I uh, don't mean to interrupt you, but I have seen some talk about that, in, you know, because I don't breed myself, but I've seen some talk along the forums of, you know, certain companies aren't allowed to ship, you know, via certain um, shipping lanes and stuff like that, and so please do tell us about what, what all this means and how it all worked out and what the heck is going on. Right, yeah, and that's and that's one of the fears is, you know, you spend all this money to establish a colony and you're working with it and you've outlaid thousands of dollars and now all of a sudden UPS and FedEx say, okay, we're not going to ship any more reptiles. Well, you know, then you've only got your backyard that you can sell your babies in and right. it becomes really hard. I mean, the Internet, you know, makes it where you can sell everything you hatch really easily, but mm -hmm. if they take that away from you where you can't ship, then, of course, you're really going to be in a pickle. Uh so, and, and basically right now, um, I think FedEx is the only one allowing you to ship snakes, and uh, UPS doesn't allow any snakes, but uh, UPS will still allow you to ship reptiles, but Ship My Reptile had a UPS account that you kind of used their account and got a better discount rate. 
Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, so you would ship it, but you would use ship my reptiles account number, and it'd be about twenty dollars less than if you went and shipped it on your own UPS account number. Oh, uh, I but, see. You, you know, saving the customer on that shipping, but right. uh, some customers shipped the snake uh, when they weren't supposed to, and then it turned out it was a venomous snake. To oh. That and and it went to a school, and then you know, oh, so no they lost kidding. their yeah, they lost their ability to. Uh, to ship UPS, and now they're uh, trying to set up FedEx uh, to, to do that. But on a personal level, you have to get uh, certified to ship FedEx, and then UPS, you can still ship uh, reptiles like geckos and lizards and mm-hmm. those non, you know, non-threatening style uh, reptiles. Right. Yeah. Man, that is cool. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Jimmy <clears throat> Christmas. <laughs> That's really crazy. Yeah. So, um... <clears throat> Now, would you recommend this species uh, of your, well, I shouldn't say species, would you recommend the genre of Euromastics to somebody living in an apartment setting? Yeah, actually, they're, they're really good uh, apartment pets, and, uh, you know, uh, if you've got enough room for a four-foot-by-two-foot cage, um, you know, many people will stack, you know, they can stack four or six of them in, in a corner and, and or a single cage, uh, and they make great, uh, you know, apartment-level species, especially since you don't have to feed them insects. You know, you're just feeding them a good mix of greens and edible flowers and dried seeds and, and, and beans and such that it's not really going to disturb your neighbors. They're not going to be getting a whole bunch of crickets crawling down the walls, or they're not going to have, you know, any issues. It's, they don't make noise. They don't really smell. You know, they're, they don't, a lot of people that have allergies can, can have a lizard that can't have a dog or a cat, so... You know, they make a, an interesting subject for your kid to have a pet if, if he's got, you know, allergies or other reasons to not have the typical pet. Right, right. Now, um, just out of curiosity, how would you describe to someone what a Euromastix looks like? Well, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> because... To me, a Euromastix looks like a, a turtle without a shell. Thank with you. A, with, with a really spiny, like, armored tail. Okay, you very know, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, the same yeah. way I explain, because, you know, you say Euromastix to some people, somebody outside of, you know, a reptile show or somebody that breeds them, they're like, what the hell was that? What? Exactly, what is that? And you're like, well, um, let me put it to you this way. <laughs> yeah, if you're talking to a little kid, you tell them it looks like a little dinosaur, and if you're talking to an adult, you know, it looks like a turtle without a shell. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, yeah. um, where, do you, where do most of the collected Euromastix uh, come from? Because we know from past experience, I think, that we can't continue inbreeding all the time. Otherwise, right, it starts to right. develop genetic, you know, anomalies that, you know, are uh, unwanted, let's say. Yes, yes. Yeah, and that's really where the, the wild-caught or the farmed uh, becomes acceptable, the purchase of a breeders looking to expand their bloodlines and things of that nature. And right. Those, those lizards typically uh, come from, you know, Africa, Morocco, Sudan, uh, Egypt, uh, South Algeria, Mali, uh, Yemen, uh, India, Pakistan, those type of places. Okay. And, uh, it's really up to the uh, importer to be brave enough to uh, have the financial risk of putting the money out to bring those lizards over. So you never know what species are going to be brought in on a yearly basis. And there are several species that came in once and they've never come in again. So oh, really? really? To, oh, yeah. yeah wow. So some of them, you know, if you have a certain species uh, of, of your mastic, they could be worth you know, a ton of money just because they haven't been imported in 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's like the McFadden Eye and the, the Hardwicky and 
some of those haven't been, you know, imported for years and years. And the Philbias have come in a few times lately, but who knows if those will be continue to be imported or not. But it seems like like the ornates and the mollies and the well, mollies are now disbars. Right. Uh, <laughs> the Sudanese are are uh, more commonly imported than the others, but mm-hmm. you know, even ornates might only be once or twice a year that they come in. So uh, you just have to kind of, if you're a breeder, you have to hopefully have the funds available when that happens because it's like a one-week window and then after that exactly another year you're never going to see it again you know here it is grab it now exactly now as far as color morphs go um just for our listeners to get a uh, general overview i mean i've seen euromastics that look i mean like somebody painted them with neon green paint i've seen somewhat blue ones i mean is there anybody working with an actual specific morph to change the color patterns or integrate them or anything like that? Or Yeah, you know, there's not, the, the problem with uromastics and the color morphs is that it's typically the males that have the color, not the females, uh, one thing. And then another thing is it takes a, a, a typical male uromastic about three to four years to have its full adult colors. When right. Baby, they all look the same. They all have the same spots on their back. They all have the same uh, bars and ocelli and, and all of mm-hmm. that on their backs uh, but then as they mature the females basically become dr- more drab and the males get really colorful uh, so that makes it a little harder and you're right the main color morphs are like blue and green and you can see like this absolutely beautiful shining blue and, and really bright green colors all the way to the drabest of drabs and if you if you import you know and, and or you buy from an importer a batch of lizards, you'll mm-hmm. see the whole gamut. You know, there'll be some that are just, oh, my gosh, jaw-dropping beautiful, and then there's some that don't have near the color, you know. Right. It's just nature, you know. But uh, I am um, part of the reason that I'm focusing on ornates and got rid of a lot of my other stock was I bought uh, the last uh, pair of white bloodline ornates from Audrey Vanderlyn when she retired from breeding uh, ornate uromastic. So... Right, now explain to our listeners, just in case they're unaware, what is a white um, bloodline? It's, it, you know, it still hasn't really been proven out, and that's kind of the project that I'm, I'm working on doing. Um, the male was born totally white, and as he got older, um, he did get some lavender color on it, but he doesn't have any of the typical background markings or anything of a normal-looking uromastic and he's just a beautiful lavender color and then when he's really hot basking is usually when the most color comes out on a lizard he turns almost white um, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, I've got you know I've got another white female that has that bloodline that I'm going to breed him with as well as about six or eight normal females that I'll be letting him have a chance at this year to see yeah. okay, what, is, what is produced and then right. uh, I also got a patternless ornate female last year as Ooh. part of those uh, that came in that uh, once she gets enough weight on her, I'm going to also breed that should throw some interesting uh, kinks into the morph side of things. If she actually can produce babies with no pattern, it would mm-hmm. be really exciting to produce a solid back, you know, solid blue back, solid green back with no ocelli, no bars, no nothing, just solid color. Uh, wow. I don't know if, if that could actually happen or not. but Right, you know, right. Yeah, that white yeah, so, one sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, they're very cool, and it was quite very very expensive, and it was you know. Oh, I, I don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't it even want to fathom pair. how much that was. <laughs> right, and uh, and so that's kind of what uh, you know prompted me to go ahead and focus on the ornates, and yeah, uh, they've always been my favorite anyway. So, 
Um, and I really like the Silby eyes too. So if I can get some more of those, I'm going to definitely try to work with those as well. Now, what's because the only difference that I knew of, and this is you know six eight years ago now, um, between the Silby eye and the bent eyes was one had femoral pores and one didn't. Yeah, that was the old days. What they thought. But they really figured out that what they were bringing in were bent eye, and, and the true Philby eye looks a lot, lot more like an ornate than it does uh, like a bent eye. Uh, the, the males are really beautiful blue with the ocelli on their back, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't they don't really represent they don't really resemble a bent eye at all. Uh, oh wow! But in the olden days, you know, a lot of times they like you know back when I was bringing mollies in, I would get a batch of them and. There would be banded-looking mollies, and there would be, uh, you know, black mollies, and there would be all these different style of mollies. Well, now they've got all these different morphs of mollies, but, you know, mm-hmm. back in the old days, they just came in as mollies, you know? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and now everything's a different morph. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've got names for everything, but to me, they're still all just mollies, you know? Right. But, um, but it's interesting, the ones that can reproduce those markings, then people can work with them and kind of focus on that. You know, like the bandits are really cool. They have, like, a... Like almost like a tiger stripe looking pattern on their back. And yeah, that's the uh, Flava Maculatus, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. those things yeah. are. Yeah, those things are awesome looking. I saw some of Douglas Dix's at the show last uh, up in Pomona. We were talking about that. And I was right. Man, yeah. those yeah, things are just awesome. Yeah, he had some banded babies that he was selling. His, and I almost actually got some of those, but I'm trying to keep a focus. It, <laughs> you get like a kid in a candy store. It's like oh, I, I know that, it. <laughs> I know it, I know it. So, uh, speaking of shows, uh, do you do shows at all? You know, I haven't been, uh, okay. just because uh, I'll be getting back into it. I used to do them all okay. the time, and, the, and now I'm just trying to get my breeding stock back up to where, right now, I sell everything that I breed so fast that it, I don't really have anything to take to a show. Right. The stuff, I, the stuff I acclimate, people give me deposits for before it's even, mm-hmm. you know, I start taking deposits as soon as I get them, and then... Right. I'll ship them out, you know, I'll, I'll send you, like, reports as how much weight it's gained, as what it send you pictures and things like that. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, now I've got a lot more adult females, and if I start producing, you know, a whole bunch of uh, hatchlings, then, of course, I'll start doing the shows. And so okay. I go to a lot of the shows, the right. National Reptile uh, Breeders Association shows here in Arlington, Texas, uh, on the 12th of next month. I'm looking forward to that. Right, right. Yeah. Now, uh, as far as um, uh, legalities go, uh, what is your thoughts on some of the reptile litigation? That's yeah, you know, on? currently I think the reptile litigation seems to be targeted kind of more towards snakes than other reptiles, but I feel like ultimately this will hurt all reptile uh-huh. and breeders. You know, we really need to be careful about the unintended uh, consequences of banning things. You know, they're, they're requiring licensing for these different kinds of snakes and stuff, and I think it's going to contribute to a lot more reptiles being released into the wild. You know, that's, right. that's never a good thing. You know, I think that, you know, they think they're 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 protecting the species or they're protecting the the humans when they're really doing more harm than good. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Now, what do you think as uh, as a breeder and you know just being involved in the reptile industry as a whole? What do you see uh, for the future of the reptile industry? Well, you know, for the future, I, th- I feel like we have a, a duty to care, you know, for the animals which we keep, but we also have a duty to safeguard, you know, future generations' ability to keep reptiles. So, you know, a lot of the bills that are being proposed right now is going to potentially make it illegal to keep and breed many species of reptiles, and, you know, this 
looking at that would be disastrous to our kids not getting to experience them. Plus, there's a huge industry that's built on selling reptiles that, you know, the economy's bad enough without taking away people's livelihood. Right, right. I think the last report I read um, from 2008, I think, was like there was something like 13.4 million people that own reptiles. Right. You know, exactly. so it's like, come on, guys, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the company's already in the crap, right now you're just going to destroy even more. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of what they, they think they're, you know, they write these bills that they think it's going to help, but it has the, you know, absolute op- opposite effect. Right, right. Now, what about this ban in Ohio? Have you heard anything or know anything about that directly? or? Um, you know, I haven't read anything on that specifically. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen on that yet. Yeah, because basically uh, my understanding is that some outgoing governor basically decided, you know, his last day in office that he was going to ban reptiles. And it was like, yeah, well, what? <laughs> Where did all, that come all from? <laughs> all the people in his area need to take the reptiles and drop it off at his house. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. <laughs> Many Christmas. Okay, now um, another question that I always ask all my guests that are on the show, uh, Troy, is um, if money was no object and you know you had everything that you could possibly ever need to keep it, what would be the ultimate species of reptile that you would? Um, you know, for me, it's it's probably the the Euromastic Thomasi. That oh, okay. Species. Yeah, I think those are some of the coolest looking. Uh, and I probably have the ability to keep it, just not the financial wherewithal to, to import them in. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they uh, used to be ten to fifteen thousand dollars each, and oh. now they're going for three to five thousand dollars each, and it still puts it outside the reach of normal people to be able to afford to set up that species. But I would love to be able to work with a breeding pair or set up a colony of those. Right, right. Yeah, I, the, I can't imagine trying to come home after telling the wife over the phone that I just spent $3,000 on a reptile. <laughs> exactly, or six six for a pair or exactly. nine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it was such a great deal. It was only six for a pair. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, she'll be really happy with you if they have 15 babies. Exactly. For $2,000 each. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so there you have it, folks. That was Troy Jones of Euro Ranch. <clears throat> And uh, as you can see, we ended on definitely a high note talking about the uh, Euromastix uh, Thomasi and how we'd both love to import some, but it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And as always, we are brought to you once again by Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos. Tune in to Marsha's website, www.goldengategeckos, for the finest in captive bred leopard geckos, uh, African fat tails, as well as the colionic species, and of course, the ever alien and cute looking nefarious species of Australian geckos give her a tumble great lady very helpful customer services number one over there at uh, golden gate geckos like i said goldengategeckos.com never go wrong there and uh, we look forward to seeing you from next week so tune in next week drop some comments on the blog reptileapartment.com do definitely check out herphousemag.com it's our new e-zine that we're going to change the uh, herpeticulture world as we know it as far as literature is concerned um, basically you get a bunch of content and no ads except for those who write articles for us so it's going to be basically like five or six business card size ads and the rest of it's all going to be complete content uh, brought right to you <laughs>